Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, this is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast and uh, it's a wet morning today, but I'm sure if you're listening under the doona, that won't make a difference. Uh, if you were uh, tuned into uh, the mainstream media last night, you would have heard that uh, the uh, mainstream media are already beating the drums for a uh, change in prime ministership. It may or may not happen, but uh, people uh, were talking a couple of months ago about uh, Dutton taking over the Prime Ministership from Turnbull and uh, according to the Channel 7 uh, mainstream news that appears to be the front running pick for if there's a change of horse and uh, what Australia reaches its uh, highest level in this era of pushing the centre to the right with a Queens, ex-Queensland cop as our Prime Minister. Amazing stuff, amazing stuff. And I thought that uh, since the big scuffle that's been going on at the moment appears to be surrounding the uh, recent meetings or ongoing meetings around energy, I thought I would dust off something from the vault I collected this last year at the what was called the Social and Economic Forum, which is put on by the Melbourne University in partnership with the Australian newspaper. So uh, you can see that it would bring a swag of academics from leading, in inverted commas, universities across Australia and uh government apparatchiks as well as the politicians of both parties and they did indeed turn up and uh, one of the sessions that was on was called energy and environment and energy and this was one of the interesting things that uh, I don't know if you've noticed this and this is one of the things about rearranging the furniture but uh, Josh Frydenberg who is in this LNP government not the Minister for Environment, he's the Minister for Environment and Energy because, of course, energy and environment go hand in hand in the new order. Environment isn't supreme. It uh, turns out that uh, having lower prices for our electricity tied to gas 
coal mines and fracking are really what energy uh, environment is about. That's what I learned when I went to that particular speech. And I thought that it would be worthwhile playing what he actually said so that people will realise exactly what the LNP government stands for when it comes to the environment. Because they're not being secretive about it. They might be uh, acting as if they've got a cogent argument, but they are actually quite clear about what they believe is the right way for the Australian environment to go. Now, uh, so, you know, you know, when people go, oh, do they really mean it? How could they really say it? They really do mean it. And the Greens have put out a statement in regards to the uh, apparent uh, national energy grid uh, policies that the LNP government have put out, saying that uh, they were demanding, the Greens were demanding that there be modelling, and I'm sure the Labor Party were too, but the Greens are the ones who have been talking about it. They want some modelling for the uh, policy. And it turns out that there's a spreadsheet, an Excel, one Excel spreadsheet, that is the foundation for the LMPs in National Energy Grid. Now, you know, I know we're entering into the uh, period of uh, total uh, uh, lack of any actual policy forethought, but it is actually something that is is something about the long term uh, viability of this very very old continent. And uh, of course, it's pretty dear to all of our hearts that actually the environment has got a certain balance and security. So uh, despite uh, the, uh, you know, uh, shareholders of big companies and the big company apparatchiks that are hauling in lots of funds, in actual fact, the bottom line is clean water, clean air and a beautiful environment that has got sustainability. It should actually be the policy that we're after. But anyway, I thought that I would actually pay, play you some of the stuff that they were saying last uh, July 2017 before the big build-up towards uh, uh, the NEG. Now, remember, just before this period, uh, South Australia experienced a major outage, electric outage, the federal government says puts out a whole lot of uh, promotional activity to give the impression that the reason for why the blackout was in South Australia happened was because the, they were uh, depending on renewables and renewables can't be depended upon. It turned out that it had nothing to do with renewables. It, it turned out that it was to do with uh, the uh, company that uh, was... Uh, uh, potentially able to supply the uh, electricity, had withheld it because they could see that they could make more dollars if they did. So actually, the issue wasn't about renewables at all, but the federal government wants to make it about renewables being unstable, uh, not secure. Those types of words. Anyway, first up, you hear Josh Frydenberg, then you hear the MC who is uh, 
a senior lecturer of economics at Melbourne, David Byrne, and we also get a little bit of stuff from Mark Butler, who is the uh, Labor Shadow Minister. They don't actually call it uh, environment and energy. They've got some other more elaborate term, but uh, still a little bit of an obfuscation around the true issue, which is, in my view, environment. You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. As you know, historically, state governments have owned the generation, the retail, the network businesses, and they still do in in many states. And importantly, they own the resources under the ground. They own the coal, they own the gas, not the federal government. So what we have been doing on that front is pressuring the states who have restrictions or bans or moratoriums on conventional and unconventional gas extraction to, re- to remove those and allow further development. This will be absolutely critical to getting power prices down and getting a lower input gas input cost for business if we can get more supply into the market. The other thing we're doing in terms of pressuring the states, and the Australians taking a lead role on this, is the role of the government-owned generators particularly in Queensland, and the late bidding practices that we've seen and the impact impact that that has had on the wholesale electricity price in the Queensland market. To think that in the first five months of this year, the wholesale electricity price in Queensland was 30% above the NEM average. And that if you look at the number of times that the wholesale electricity price has gone above $5,000 a megawatt hour since mid-14... It's 30 times in Queensland. The next closest is South Australia at 16 times. And where's the money going from this hidden electricity tax? Into government coffers in Queensland with the Palaszczuk government in the 17-18 budget allowing for $1.5 billion in revenue from its generators over the forwards, which was a 110% increase on the 15-16 on the, um, budget. So we're seeing a substantial impact in Queensland of this late bidding at high prices from two government-owned generators, Stanwell and CS Energy, that have 65% of the generation capacity. And that lack of competition is something that we are asking the ACCC and the Australian Energy Regulator to focus on. The other factor that we've got at play with the states is their own state-based renewable energy targets. For states to pursue their own targets in addition to what is a federal target only creates inefficiencies and inconsistencies across the national market. So we've said to Queensland... Abandon your 50% renewable energy target, the 40% target by 2025 here in, in, uh, in Victoria and the other high targets. We've seen from South Australia's experience the price of going it alone without a truly national approach. And this threat from the Labor states at the COAG meeting last Friday to, to go it alone if the Commonwealth doesn't agree on the set, would even bring more 
or exacerbate problems across the system. I arrived in Australia in 2011 doing some research on for the, getting ready for this. I discovered in 2007 both parties went to the election with emission trading schemes, it seems. And so both parties at that point in time had in their mind market-based mechanisms to try to uh, <clears throat> slow the rate of growth of climate change and carbon in the economy. And so now we have this clean energy target, another market-based mechanism before us to sort of reduce emissions. Uh, and just by way of explanation, it, it basically gives a, 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 an advantage or credits to, uh, for people who don't know, this, this target gives credits to uh, generators of electricity whose emissions are below some baseline. And it's technology neutral in the sense that coal, if it's below the baseline, could also receive credits. Okay, so that's just by clarification. Do you guys, I mean, given the political environment around uh, energy and environment, and you guys make it seem like it's really rosy sort of at, there, but... We know it's, it's tougher than that. Do you see a path to getting bipartisan support for the clean energy target? Is there, are we going to get there? <laughs> well, firstly, you're right about the 2007 election campaigns, and you can actually even add to that that John Howard had a clean energy target right. as, uh, as his strategy um, to reducing emissions. Now, back then, um, he also foresaw developments in carbon capture and storage, that really haven't eventuated, and there are lots of reasons for that, particularly there hasn't been the large investment in the technology development from the coal industry that one would have may have hoped. Unequivocally, we're focused right now on affordability. Um, we are getting you know, daily hardship stories from, from the street, from regional communities, about the impact that higher power prices is having on businesses. And this is really hitting home. And anybody who's not focused on that um, will not make the right decisions going forward. So our immediate concern is to try to alleviate that pressure, hence some of the difficult choices around gas, for example. Um, but in order to get a long-term solution to, to price, not an immediate-term solution, immediate, but a long-term solution you do need to deal with the uncertainty in investment. And that's where working out some sort of mechanism to move from the business as usual uh, option is, is, is on the table right now. And I think that's where my colleagues do agree, that business as usual is not an option and we do need to instigate, to incentivise that long-term investment that is needed to ensure stability and affordability of supply. Mark? We recognise that there is a genuine crisis in the energy sector here. And, um, you know, there are different diagnoses floating around uh, about what is driving the affordability crisis and driving people to ex experience the level of crisis in households that is leading to dis disconnections and things like that. There are mm. a few different diagnoses going around, different party rooms. But... Um, what seems utterly clear, according to all advice, is if we don't put in place a framework, we're not going to provide any relief to affordability. No matter, no matter how many sort of ideas um, the Commonwealth or other governments come up with around government investment in new generation types or storage types, if we don't get an investment framework in place, uh, then 
we're simply not going to see any relief. If anything, we're going to see more pressure on affordability. And frankly, no one's come up with an alternative to the clean energy target or an emissions intensity scheme that carries any favour in the, in, in the investor community, particularly the electricity sector. So, you know, we, we, we have heard that message very clearly. We recognise the national interest in doing that. But frankly, also, from our own, from our own perspective, if this opportunity slips for the two major parties to achieve a bipartisan position on energy investment, I'm not sure when it will come back. I think if this opportunity slips during this parliament for us to land a deal on this, it may not come back for a number of years. And I think that would be terrible for the nation, but it would also be terrible for our political parties, which mm. will continue to be consumed by this issue. If you look around the world, uh, the, only, the countries that are doing well on this transition all have a framework that is underpinned by a bipartisan consensus. And if we don't get to that, we're going to continue to see this crisis only deteriorate. Well, the US doesn't seem to have a bipartisan consensus, but they do have a shale gas revolution, which is what is now supplanted <coughs> coal as the main form of energy um, supply. And we've seen, you know, 3 to $4 a gigajoule gas compared to Australians, which... Are paying, you know, I got a story the other day from a small business in regional New South Wales, you know, quoted $16 a gigajoule. I mean, that is just out of this world and enough to break businesses. Okay. Um, so, you know, I'd say to Bill Shorten, if he's serious about immediately alleviating the pressure on households, then pick up the phone to Daniel Andrews and pick up the phone to Michael Garner and get them to remove... Their, um, their restrictions on gas exploration. In Queensland, if you're serious about driving down prices, you know, bring more competition in the market and rein in those government-owned networks, which I note they haven't done with CS Energy. And then when it comes to the Finkel report and the clean energy target, you know, one of the differences between Mark's side and, and ours is we've established our, 30, our 2030 target. It's a 26 to 28% emissions reduction on 2005 levels. Labor's is 45%. Now, Finkel explicitly says if you were to try to remove more than 26 to 28% of emissions out of the energy sector in that time frame, it's going to have a negative impact on price That's and security. That's not what it says. Well, we're... Where does Labor think they're going to get emissions reductions if they don't get a pro rata reduction out of the electricity at a 45% target? And so there's a real word of caution there from Finkel uh, about how much you can pull out of the electricity sector in such a short time frame. And so there is, um, there is a difference between the major parties on that. Oh, doesn't he sound so reasonable? Doesn't Josh Frydenberg sound so reasonable, the uh, Minister for Environment and Energy? Now, you can tell he is immediately anti when he talks about the Queensland government and taxes coming from a government-run, two government-run enterprises that supply electricity. Goodness me, where does the tax dollar go? It goes to the government 
to the general good of the people of Queensland. And this is at the same time as the federal government has been withholding, using its uh, infrastructure funding and withholding it from Labor governments, states. Fascinating stuff. And uh, as he said, you know, it's the price that counts. So, you know, why aren't we fracking? Why aren't we fracking our brains out? Well, there you go. If you were ever in doubt about what the LNP government actually stands for, I don't know what the Labor Party really stands for, but they say it quite clearly that they are into coal, they're into gas exploration and they're into fracking and they're not are going to shy away from it, and they reckon that it's the price that counts. But do you notice that they never mention the fact that they sold, these people sold our utilities, and this is the reason for why everything costs so much. They signed a deal that to exploit our natural resources, the natural gas, and ensure that the local market had to pay international prices for its own gas. So for them to all go around shaking their heads and say, oh, dear, 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 it's all about the price of electricity and gas, let's forget the environment, Come the revolution, that's all I can say, come the revolution. You're on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast. A few important announcements. International Overdose Awareness Day is held annually on the 31st of August. It is a day to raise awareness of overdose, reduce the stigma of drug-related death and acknowledge the grief felt by family and friends of those who have died. With the ongoing stigmatisation and criminalisation of people who consume drugs in Australia, International Overdose Awareness Day is as important as ever. This year, 3CR will be broadcasting a special half-hour program at 10am on Friday the 31st of August. Join us for a panel discussion looking at current efforts to reduce the tragic loss of life from overdose in Australia. Experts will offer perspectives from the fields of research, service delivery and, most importantly, peers in the community. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. Now, last week was Blue Stocking Week and uh, Blue Stocking Week, of course, is uh, the uh, celebration of uh, those fearless women who stood up in uh, for suffrage as well as for their right for education and a whole other... Uh, load of freedoms within our society. Now, uh, there's a big exhibition on at the moment down at the um, Ian Potter Gallery attached to Melbourne University called uh, The State of the Union. You may or may not know it. uh, And uh, the NTU used it and Afida used it the other day to uh, celebrate Blue Stocking Week, and uh, also to uh, raise the uh, profile of uh, uh, AFIDA's uh, uh, local um, union's uh, support of the fight for uh, equal rights and justice across the world for working women uh, and others uh, within the uh, industrial framework. Uh, 
And I got to, I'm sorry about the quality of this, but the context and the uh, information is really good. Uh, the room was very live and uh, I couldn't get very close. But the people speaking are Robin May, who is a uh, academic but now uh, works on staff at uh, Melbourne Uni. Uh, she did some work on casualisation, a big uh, study for her PhD about the casualisation of uh, employment, uh, academic employment at uh, and general employment at uh, universities in Australia, and uh, also Professor Glenda Strawn, who's from RMIT. They had some really interesting things to say about uh, the state of play for women in the workforce. So despite the uh, quality, hopefully you will enjoy it. I think, yeah, it's, it's often a story of two steps forward and two steps back. I mean, I think back to my first job in the public service, we had affirmative action, we had um, equal opportunity, we had the Women's Bureau, and then we had John Howard, and it's kind of like, it just, we were treated <coughs> back to the white picket fence, and, um, you know, this, it's no surprise, I guess, that the um, gender pay gap is a persistent one in Australia because the sort of those structures haven't shifted and in fact um, they've just got worse and although I think there's something about social media that possibly is giving us hope because we can share our stories more and the whole Me Too movement with all its issues I think is something and this maybe, maybe it's just me and maybe I only follow people on Twitter that I agree with but there is a sense wow there are people out there who think like me and who are concerned about these things of course there's lot of very vile people as well as we know from our current politics um, but maybe somewhere in, in there there is that capacity for people to be aware that others um, share their concerns and there's different ways to sort of connect and mobilise so I can only hope. Um, I mean I'm, I must admit I'm a bit I feel like Robert's two steps forward and two steps back I mean in the 70s I suppose there was this idea that we could achieve equal pay and the, the gender pay gap seems to be very stubborn. There were women entering higher education and here we are 30 years later, women still find it even. Now, it was always this argument, women aren't as well educated as men. Here we are 30 years later, women are outnumber men in higher education and we still um, seem to struggle to enter um, the higher levels of, of many um, organisations um, and I suppose there, the, we, there was this belief that if, once you got this sort of uh, mass of women at the top levels of organisations the floodgates would open and you know, we would, women would be able to have all these opportunities and the whole gender relations in organisations and society would change. Well that seems to be very stubborn because even though women uh, 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 some women are achieving those more senior levels. I don't actually uh, notice very much uh, change around them, or rather they seem to be often co-opted by the very structures that have um, um, put them up there. And, uh, and as well, of course, uh, 1970s women's reproductive rights were um, seen as being some of the... Um, as, as being important, and now, of course, we're seeing, particularly in the, U, the US and probably, I think, here in in many ways, I've been following some of the debates in Tasmania about abortion. Um, we seem to be slipping back um, there. And of course, in some 
uh, I suppose the structure of work has has changed as well in the 19... It, when I joined the workforce, there were very few... Um, casualisation didn't happen, uh, and uh, part-time work was very rare. Of course, part-time work, there was this narrative that we needed to have more labour market flexibility to enable women to participate in the labour market uh, and still be able to you know, deal with domestic responsibilities. Of course, uh, what we have seen less of is um, part-time work or permanent part-time work and all the benefits that are attached to that and instead greater casualisation and the fragmentation of work and, um, and casualisation that we're seeing in the university um, sector. And, I, and it seems to me that probably in some ways too, um, when I first joined the workforce, if there was discrimination, it was quite blatant. Now the discrimination is far more subtle and far harder to actually um, put your finger on. Um, and in a sense, still the, the workforce is still highly gender segregated. I mean, um, many occupations, probably if you go and look at the disability workforce, uh, uh, child things related to children, uh, caring responsibilities, still highly gendered, but of course uh, the managerial positions will often be occupied by um, um, men. I mean, I did some work on um, the work on women confectioners at Cadbury's in the 1920s and actually the some of their archival material is, is held here and it's um, their work then was was casual seasonal um, they had to leave the uh, uh, employment when they got married uh, they had a women's union that was then brutally taken over by the men they had situations where they couldn't do the skilled work such as being in the machinery but rather the type of work such as decorating the chocolates that required dexterity and attention to detail but of course was classified as unskilled and uh, um, what the men did was classified as skilled and then when the men took over the women's union the work that unskilled men had done was still classified as unskilled but they uh, women now could do that and all the move, men moved up in fact a grade so in some ways I look at these and I can look at what's going on now and I think I wonder how much has really changed and of course things have changed but uh, this, the, uh, I, I suppose I still see uh, a lot that resonates from um, literally a um, hundred uh, years ago in terms of gender segregation and the way that women's work is viewed in terms of um, skill and its relationship to casualisation, its relationship to then being still primarily seen as work fitting in around um, their caring responsibilities. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I remember in the, uh, when I worked for the NUW there was a very poorly paid factory environment of all women, I think they were packing fish or something, and they needed some men to work there because some, sometimes the work was quite heavy, but essentially they had to call the men leading hands because the men wouldn't work for women's wages. The men did exactly the same things, they might lift at the occasional heavy box, but they were the leading hands and the women stayed as the um, school, you know, and this, this persists, this sort of, I guess it's kind of status hierarchy and the old, you know, the pipeline argument. 
been interesting doing the work on the Athena Swan um, report here at the university and through the whole um, Science Australia and gender equity and just looking at where even in the faculties where there is parity of professoriate and our law faculty here and our arts faculty half of the professors are women. But tell me where's the, where's the status if you work in the legal profession? It's not in the academy, it's at the bar. It's, you know, where, you know, who, who are partners of law firms? 25% of women, you know, at the bar or judges or whatever. Even, so the men just shift to where the power is. And, and as the women move in, the men kind of vacate. And I always joke with my senior colleagues that you can tell where the power is in a particular committee at the university by the gender matter. So if there's a lot of women, you know the power's moved somewhere else. So I think that's always um, interesting how sort of, yeah, power shifts, shifts around like that. Because women um, are graduating PhDs at a much higher rate than men these days. Um, and yet they still get stuck in that sort of mid-career uh, level and the work we did on um, you know, women in the science, um, you know, STEM um, disciplines where there's that real drop-off at mid-career and just interviewing those women, it was a multitude of factors that they got to a certain point and it just got too hard, they, they, couldn't, you know, they couldn't do that sort of male model of work uh, and they exited to other professions where they were going to be more valued, they had a bit more work-life balance and they were, you know, flogging themselves for this um, sort of, yeah, unrealistic prize, I guess. So um, those, those things are very persistent. Yeah, I guess the example I talk about there is maternity leave in universities. When I first started working for the unions, no one would talk about even issues like childcare or anything like that. But that was just so far off the radar for the ACTU and for unions and I remember the NUW, there were lots of places there were no women working at all and the argument was well there's no toilets, we can't have women working there because we don't have a toilet for them and you know you walk into workplaces and there's all kinds of awful posters you had to look at and the Herald Sun on the table as well. Um, <laughs> but certainly maternity leave is a really interesting one and I have to constantly remind colleagues here who take advantage of that benefit at this university. It was one because the union asked for it. I know, I know that it started at ACU, they were the ones that led the charge, but um, the unions asked for it in bargaining, the NTU asked for it in bargaining, and the NTU pushed it through, um, through the sector. And here at Melbourne, we unfortunately have it as 24 weeks plus 12 weeks return to work bonus, because as I recall, the university couldn't quite come at 36 weeks, so that was the way they packaged it. And unfortunately, what happens is a lot of academic staff actually take that 12-week return-to-work bonus in the form of coming back early and paying someone else during their maternity leave <laughs> to work in their lab. Um, so it's kind of, it's become inequitable in the way it actually um, plays out. Um, but nonetheless, this is a significant benefit um, that is now, I think, quite mainstream. I mean, certainly a lot of private sector, it's pretty common for women to get three months of maternity leave. Uh, and who would have thought that seemed intractable a long time ago? Our administrator's been miles behind on this one, but it seemed an intractable, um, intractable benefit. And it was argued and argued, I remember, the case, you know, well, it's a private choice, surely. Why should the state have to pay for women to have babies? And I thought, God, we've got past that, but it seemed to take a while to get past those arguments. Um, but yeah, I think we have to keep remembering that these things aren't handed to us by our employers because they're kind 
um, they are hard won. And here, the vast majority of women return to work. Um, There's a central fund that pays for that maternity leave. It's not a cost on the particular department. It, you know, it's obviously economically, it works out fine. It doesn't cost that much money. Uh, everyone goes back to work and, yeah, and we employ a hell of a lot of women, so why wouldn't you? But that, um, that one took a while, I think, didn't it? Yes, I mean, I, I'm not so familiar with campaigns in the university, but certainly when I think about um, campaigns for equal pay, I, mean, I think uh, women started off getting 75% of, oh, no, sorry, 52% of a man's wage. Uh, then I think it was 75%, and then I think there was equal pay in 1966. So I think it took about 40 years for women to get equal pay, so it's equal pay for equal work, but we still we have, of course, gender, gender segregation. So we shouldn't, I think, think that um, these, these things happen um, overnight. So in some ways, of course, it gives me optimism that things can change, but of course it also tempers it my enthusiasm with the recognition that all these things take a long period of time. And I must admit, I think with um, Change the Rules, the thing that concerns me is that I don't think we have um, a long period of time given um, the way that union density is going. Um, I think there's a real, to me, danger that unless we actually get um, some type of change the rules that enables workers to take control over their own lives, what we're going to end up increasingly with is um, pockets of trade unionism, often in that'll be masculine and that they'll be in sort of privileged positions and that the rest of the um, workforce, which will be largely women um, and those less powerful workers will largely be um, de-unionised. So um, in some ways history gives me um, hope but it also gives me uh, pessimism. This is Iri Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. And on the line, we've got Roger Wilson from Fair Go for Pensioners. How are you, Roger? Yeah, I'm well. And yourself? Yeah, good. It's a, it's a bit chilly. I hope your listeners are all well. Yeah. We, we were going to have a chat about um, the lead-up to the Victorian election and yes, and yes. what's going on in regards... With Fair Go for Pensioners? Yes. Well, what's happening is that it's part of our activity going toward the election... Fego for Pensioners has sent a letter to every member of state parliament asking them what their uh, position is relative to our claims against the state government. And briefly, uh, a thumbnail sketch of the claims are, for example, uh, the high cost of utilities is of considerable concern uh, not only to pensioners, but in fact to all people who uh, rely on social security for their income, the unemployed, single parents, etc. And we've written to, as I said, to all members of parliament, we're now getting 
responses. We've had responses from nearly 20 members of parliament, which is oh, that's interesting. quite uh, positive. Yeah. Yes. And uh, what we're now going to do... Can, can you can you uh, can you break down the sorts of responses that they've been giving? Well, uh, it's only uh, in in my head, so to speak, because the, it, it, each response is a bit different. Some are quite positive, and uh, others are will refer this to the shadow minister or whatever. Uh, and uh, once we sift through these and find those that are more positive and less positive and hostile, well, then we're going to plan uh, a series of, uh, uh, first in the first instance, request that they meet with us to discuss the claims, and if they don't meet with us, well, we're going to consider, uh, in fact, having demonstrations outside their electoral office to draw attention to the uh, particular claim. So that's part of our elect electoral activity. Uh, we recognise, of course, that the Andrews government has done some uh, very positive things for the citizens of the state of Victoria. For instance, their public transport initiatives have uh, indeed led to the creation of uh, lots of new jobs and it's my understanding that statistically most of them are full-time jobs not mickey mouse uh you know what do they call it casual employment but what we're critical of the government about is that they still haven't really come to terms with the uh, serious growth in poverty across the community among low-income uh, people or people who have no income at all. And I think one of the striking uh, uh, visual uh, aspects of this is the increasing number of people uh, living on the streets so that they're, uh, they're not really, in our view, uh, uh, facing up to this problem. And if you look at the uh, aspect of, say, housing, which is part of whether you're in poverty or not poverty, and indeed everybody is, should be able to have a roof over their head, uh, the government is... Uh, going down a path which eventually will lead to the privatisation, the abolition of public housing, and we think that's uh, fraught with uh, serious uh, danger. In fact, Other there seems to be, uh, Trevor, uh, sorry, uh, Roger, there seems to be a bipartisan view, uh, both Labor and Liberal, and it's only the Greens... Uh, uh, that uh, have any view? I think so, and I might say that the Greens, to date, uh, I've been in touch with the Greens uh, on some other matters and in the course of which I requested an opportunity uh, to meet with uh, the leading group of the parliamentary Greens in Victoria and they've actually responded saying that... Uh, yes, we're happy to meet with you to discuss your concerns and uh, we're in the process of or 
organising that meeting over the next uh, hopefully week or two. Things that we will really uh, press with them is the question, for example, of utility costs. Uh, most people are aware of the fact that electricity, gas, rates, water, all these uh, absolutely necessary uh, provisions for the community are constantly going up uh, in cost. And I think it's absurd for the Prime Minister to try and sell a Mickey Mouse energy policy, which he says will automatically bring prices down. But the fact of the matter is that since state governments privatised most of the public utilities, every year the costs have gone up significantly. They're not going uh, backwards, they're going up at a rapid rate of knots, to in use fact, a seafaring phrase. Yeah, in fact, it's, it seems bizarre to me that uh, these politicians think that the community has got such a poor memory that they don't know the reason for why everything has gone up. Well, it's indeed. so ludicrous. Well, I think it's ludicrous, and in fact, uh, you don't even have to have a sharp memory because you have to pay <laughs> the bills every three months anyhow. So, exactly. Uh, I mean, you know, you look you... at your gas bill and uh, your yeah. uh, connection, etc., is more expensive than your, the actual u- gas you use. Yeah, and and hopefully these concerns will be reflected in the election and, of course, Fairgo for pensioners is mindful of the fact that if uh, Athol Guy and his uh, crew of amateurs uh, became uh, came to sit on the Treasury benches, so to speak, well, uh, it wouldn't be uh, very uh, positive for the community in Victoria. But uh, having said that, uh, because that's uh, true, fair go for pensioners is very political in its activities. Uh, indeed, or most public issues are, have an aspect of politics about them. Now, Anyhow, but, uh, now, uh, now Roger, Roger, you uh, fair go for pensioners uh, is for all people who are on pensions and that, receive... that, and, and, and indeed, and uh, those who are on low incomes and. Uh, only in casual work, etc., etc. Yeah, and, uh, and but what I wanted to get to was that if you were talking about uh, one group, of, a, a big, big group of your uh, people, which is yep. uh, uh, old age pensioners who yeah. are on a fixed uh, income, a lot of this, uh, right. a lot of this uh, stuff around uh, high utility prices, rising rates, that sort yep. of stuff. Uh, there's been, there was a very big push and still is within the uh, federal government to uh, get older people to relinquish their hard uh, fought for home properties. Is that having an effect yep. on your people? Oh, well, it's having an effect in the sense that people are concerned about it and, uh, uh, and uh, I think in part you're referring to the government's idea, well, you can get a reverse mortgage and you'll have plenty of money to live on and uh, that sort of thing. Well, we're strongly opposed to that. The uh, uh, the concept of uh, a family...
family uh, being able to afford, uh, eventually afford after they've paid the mortgage off their own home rather than uh, be at the whims of uh, landlords uh, where rents are constantly increasing. And in fact, we've got uh, case studies of some of our pensioner members where they're paying nearly 75% of their pension for rent. Now, that doesn't leave that much wouldn't to be pay unusual. for the gas. No, no, no. It's, it's quite uh, common and uh, we absolutely reject the notion that people can uh, get a reverse mortgage or a loan against their home, uh, uh, you know, to tide them over until they go to the happy hunting ground in the sky. So uh, we're strongly opposed to that. And the, I think one of the saddest things at the moment in terms of public discussion is that among almost the majority, I think, of uh, the political class, there doesn't seem to be much human compassion and they've sunk deeper and deeper into the mire that the market, the private capitalist market, will solve all problems to the uh, benefit of all of the citizens. Well, you know, it's, a, it's an absolute nonsense. Yeah, it certainly is. So uh, Fair Go for Pensioners is uh, actively uh, involving itself in the lead-up to the uh, November the 24th election in Victoria. Yes. Yes, and uh, we're, uh, as I said, we're getting active, seeking deputations, and then if uh, uh, hopefully somebody's listening to this program on behalf of the government and the other parties that will be contesting the election, if they don't meet with us, well, we'll uh, seriously consider demonstrating outside their electoral office so that people in their electorate know where they stand. How can people become part of what you're doing, Roger? Uh, well, uh, Fairgo for Pensioners does have a website. I don't have the address in mind. That's okay. They can head, just put in... But, uh, they can just but put in Fair Go for they Pensioners. they can Google that. Yep. We do have a section in Fair Go for Pensioners for individuals who aren't in any organisation but wish to be involved and help. And uh, that's the way uh, we recruit individual people. You know, people come along to our uh, stall during uh, Seniors Week and... Uh, we get a, we've got a number of recruits through that mechanism. They say, "Look, I'm not in, the, I'm not in a union retiree group, or I'm not in a seniors group, I'm not in a this club or that club, but I am interested to help in this work because I have, uh, you know, attitudes to social justice and so on." And if they uh, Google Fair Go for Pensioners, uh, uh, they'll. Uh, see the address and they can send us a message and we'll follow it up. Thanks very much for talking to us today, Roger. And thanks to your listeners and thanks to your program. Thanks very much. A weak solidarity, Breggy Team listener, when our true blue Aussie values forged on the beaches of Sydney in 1788 when the first boat people arrived and honed sharply on a beach in Turkey thanks to a military disaster 
and finely tuned many times over through invasion after invasion, from Vietnam to Afghanistan, Iraq to Korea, and many others, were expressed clearly, brought to a final solution by a bloke called Freezer, so-called presumably because he's as cold as ice, Freezer hanging non-whites of the Qatar Islam Party. Well, that true blue Aussie value, hanging non-whites, was practised by the first boat people. And for goodness sake, it takes a huge effort to prompt one notion's that appalling Hoonsun to call you racist, a, a monumental effort. And even, uh, even have the Minister for Concentration Camps raise a wire and sink the boats and keeping us secure, Constable Peter Duffer and his big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull although that may be reversed shortly. Anyway, a huge effort for them to call you racist, inferring their constant comments about immigration, about no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people, the post-1788 boat people, particularly black boat people, were not racist. Just a warning to steer clear of restaurants, avoid sitting there in constant fear, and don't go out after dark. Wonder if Freezer and the team see any irony at all in wanting a country that was 100% black when the first boat people arrived to continue a white true blue Aussie policy. But did I hear Freezer in a moment of acute self-awareness admit he was adult? Oh no, hang on, I've had another look. Not adult, Adolf. In order to stop the illegal boats, I got here on 19 boats, elected to the benches out the back on 19 votes, and not one of them black. In the place where blacks are heavily overrepresented, there was a scramble among our rapidly growing prison populations and those facing trial to join the rapidly growing to determine for themselves if that they have been rapidly growing imprisoned for or charged with is a crime or simply dishonourable, a dishonourable non-crime. Tick the appropriate box and tell us if you should go to jail at all. Declare your own innocence or guilt. Following our item last week that that non-misnomer, the nab your money bank, big supremo Andrew Thor burn your money, declared the bank and himself innocent because the bank had acted dishonourably but not criminally. The armed robbery was dishonourable, Your Honour but not criminal. And if that defence failed, we'd advise the accused to follow the bank's daily lead next time and practice unarmed robbery. Andrew points out that's dishonourable, but not a crime. At least in this most distressing time, poor Andrew has as consolation his obscenely giant salary and even more comforting consolation that there's not the slightest chance he will join those real dishonourable criminals in the rapidly growing incarcerated populations. On Black's poor Donald. U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, has been accused of using the N-word as they keep calling it, suggesting he may be a, a trifle racist, leading Donald diplomatically to call his accuser a low-life dog. But he said it very nicely, well, tweeted it very nicely, and the racist accusation can't be true because he said he was sorry Aretha Franklin had died. I'd say a little prayer for me. 
although his sympathy may dissipate if some advisor informs him she's black and was involved in the civil rights movement. And as an aside, music outlets were hard at work yesterday morning doubling the price tags on all Aretha Franklin albums. And then I discovered I had something in common with her. Because former USR Big Supremo Barack for Change, Change, Change said one of her performances had reduced him to tears. And I know every time I sing. But Donald shed tears for those US of citizens being made great again, affected by Turkey imposing tariffs on certain products. Just because Donald had imposed tariffs on certain Turkish products, like all of them. And Donald said it was disgraceful that Turkey had retaliated because the US of actions had been for national security reasons. Apparently they must have thought Turkey was exporting bombs or something. He, he didn't quite explain, but he has a point because exporting bombs or something uh, is the role of the US of and no one else. Actions had been for security reasons, whereas Turkey's retaliation had been for retaliation. Satire can't compete with the old Donald. He's, he's a big tweeting bundle of logic, but sometimes we're faced with impossible choices. Take this trade dispute. Donald and Turkey's big supremo heard the votes again. Donald versus heard the votes. Donald heard the votes again. No, it's impossible. Who do we parrick for? The best we can say is they deserve each other. We also mentioned last week there are cynics, ideological fanatics, who claim all the problems Malcolm, his fossils minister, Josh Friedem Icebergs, his predecessor, tiny a bit more for the bosses with his balanced views and the team are tackling over this negative energy policy emanate from privatising the public assets showing how a rational ideological fanaticism can be. Any wonder it upsets poor Tiny, we commented. Well, those fanatics were put in their place this week with the remotest suggestion that privatising public assets with its promise of guaranteed lower prices has something to do with higher prices scotched irrefutably. Trubler was the Energy Profits Council Supremo Sarah Make No More Renewables laid the blame fairly and squarely with government, with the public sector forcing the closure of fossils and more particularly, quote, direct quote, add to that the absence of a national policy framework and you have the recipe for high energy prices and a lack of investment in like-for-like -like replacement power stations. Uh, a like-for-like -like series, you mean replace coal with coal? Certainly, fossils for fossils. Uh, but the government does support coal for coal. It even expresses its faith in market forces by wanting to build its own. That's true, but it doesn't support it enough. We need incentives like the government funding our investments with that sort of support, a few public purse incentives, and we would gladly invest. And don't forget, we are talking about heli, high energy, low emission coal. I thought it unfair to mention to Sarah there just could be a no emission alternative, but heli, we would have thought the fossils could have thought up a less appropriate acronym. As a by-the-by, we know Tiny, as a passionate advocate of nuclear power, if only we could get away with it if it wasn't for the interfering long-haired Cobby Brigade, and he wouldn't be advocating it if he thought for one second there was a problem. 
over and above, say, 200,000 years or so, working out what to do with the waste or addressing the odd health problems it may generate. So at least it generates something. Because therefore, I was surprised during the extreme heat across Europe last week at a news report that France and other countries had closed down a number of nuclear power plants because of the extreme heat. Whoops, what's that mean, I thought? We don't have to wait 200,000 years? Does it mean, surely not, nuclear power can't meet baseload requirements when the sun does shine and the wind does blow? The other day, the Spencer Street no longer, Spencer Street uh, no longer Falfax, True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review did something very unusual for it. Its big P3 story with Big Picky announced the new exciting, exciting lineup of presenters when Channel None takes over the tennis this summer. If we didn't know Channel None would never dream of influencing editorial policy, we just may have thought, but... No, it's just a great story. I'm sure we all couldn't wait to find out. It hasn't taken long. A week also, of course, when we've all been absorbed, unable to put down True Blue Aussie's latest literary tome, its author destined for Nobel Literature Honours. Yes, Barnacle's new book. Well, his only book, and it's odds on it'll be his last. I recall arch-conservative, still New South Wales Minister of State Prude Goward and her caring business class party apparatchik husband, can't think of his name, but they wrote a 700-page biography of the little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo back in those dark ages. Biography? Well, no, pure hagiography, which I raised because it sold about 20 copies nationwide. 20 massacres. But I reckon in the bestseller department, Barnacle's contribution to literature will give it a run for its money. Barnacle did admit he'd chased women for years. He'd have to chase because they'd all be running away. And while I'm the little bald-headed bloke who used to be, on that disturbing thought that Constable Duffer may challenge Malcolm for Big Supremo, perhaps the caring business class and hayseed and sheepshit party's lot, since the demise of a little bald-headed bloke, just enjoy watching their Big Supremo lose his own seat. And they've all been uh, hymns, by the way. And on a run for its money item on this program last week with former Socialist Party big economic guru Wayne Swansong as his Swansong sounding like some Marxist lecturer, True Blue Aussie's radical guru. And I thought, why didn't he do all that when he had the chance? And he told us the caring business class party lot were the party that failed workers. And again, I thought, I reckon the Socialist Party would give them a run for their money. Finally... On a sombre note, judges keep attacking and fining the evil construction union. The competition watchdog this week launched cartel charges against the union, while yet another construction worker, a 35-year-old father of two, was killed on Thursday. will never go home from work. Yesterday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review ran big, big story of the union being charged, no mention of a worker dying, while the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin six pass bottom of page under big picky story that a clothes horse fashion salesperson was leaving the great department store, presumably because she's over 30 and past it. Worker, same age, will never get any older. Good morning. 
The Australian Plants Expo is a huge native plant fair coming up on September 8th and 9th in Eltham. There'll be books, art, giftware and talks by Philip Johnson, A.B. Bishop and Loretta Childs. There'll also be demonstrations and workshops on botanical art, propagation and native bonsai, as well as activities for children, refreshments and door prizes. Saturday and Sunday, September 8th and 9th, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Contact at apsyarrayarra at gmail.com or call 0430-513-433 for more details. Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra is a 3CR supporter. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. On sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. And lucky for us, in the studio, we've got April Cummings, who... G'day, April. How are you? Good morning, Annie. I'm fine. How are you? Good. Now, the reason for why uh, I asked April to come in, and she very nicely said yes and actually did arrive, was that uh, at one stage in your career, you worked for about six years for the English Labor Party, and you were part of the uh, team that worked to get Corbyn into the leadership. That's mm. correct, isn't it? So pretty much on the on the button, I actually worked uh, for six years for the Labour Party for Scottish um, representative. So I was mostly based in Scotland, but I also worked in Westminster for a number of different think tanks and lobby groups. And I also worked for Jeremy on his leadership campaign um, at the sort of front of the Scottish end of, of, of business. Um, and that was in, in 2015 for, for a while. It was fantastic. Um, and my uh, work with Jeremy primarily began in 2010 when I was... Um, I suppose, for want of a better word, a lobbyist for the Labour Friends of Palestine in the Middle East, um, which is, I guess, a, a labour-orientated group that looks into things like um, the peace process and how we can achieve a two-state solution. So that was my initial contact with him, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And he's, uh, well, it's well, it's clear that um, where he stands in relation to that. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things about Corbyn, isn't it? Uh, we were talking off air about the notion that uh, is it possible for uh, a party to actually be elected being humanist and actually uh, working in the interests of the general population rather than the few? Mm-hmm. And uh, you said? That I believe it actually goes beyond uh, the the character of the person that's at the front of the party. Actually, a lot of, while Jeremy is what I would call a humanist and he is somebody who is 
um, immensely approachable and very down to earth and just you know, incredibly normal, actually, which can be something that's... He rides a bike. A, yeah, absolutely. He rides a bike. He looks after marrows. You know, he has his allotment. Um, in fact, he has a strange penchant for manhole covers. In fact, he walks around cities all over the world documenting <laughs> the inscriptions on manhole covers because he thinks it tells a story about the history of the uh, of the cities he's in. So, so it goes beyond Jeremy. I think what he represents is a democratization of the party um, and uh, a genuine shift towards uh, engagement from the grassroots in a community-orientated, movement-based type of politics, which is what the Labour movement, it's in the name, um, uh, originally was all about. So I kind of... I think that while there is a lot of focus on him as a leader, um, he is, to many of the members who campaigned for him and who elected him, he is a conduit for genuine democratic change both within and outside the party. Yeah. Mm. And I think that to be a humanist is fantastic because you are somebody who... Um, in, in principle approaches everybody with the intent um, to learn from that person, to engage with them on a, on a meaningful level, and then actually use that interaction to inform the way that you do your politics. Uh, I think he's shown in all of his, his work so far that that's what he's all about. Mm-hmm. It's quite fascinating that uh, Corbyn got up. This didn't happen just by a wish-fulfillment approach. Can you tell us a little bit about the campaigning process? So uh, immediately before Jeremy um, got onto the ballot, which was very... That was hard enough. It was, it was very difficult and it was quite fun because um, at the time in the, the Scottish kind of end of the business, a lot of people were still what you would call very centrist. Um, and a lot of them were quite against the notion of a, a genuine left alternative getting onto the ballot. But there were a few of us kind of splitters <laughs> on the corridor who were very, very excited about it and campaigned to get him on there. I mean, a lot of phone calls and it was all very last minute but um you know we got on which is which is fantastic and in but, fact it probably was just as well it was last minute because mm. otherwise things start wheels start falling off don't they people work against you yeah absolutely and i think there was a sense of urgency um and you know our our, our, our colleagues from the center and from the right kind of you know blessed them and thought oh this will be fun to have a real competition <laughs> You know, um, it turns out that but we we're were, the real we, main Well, guy. you know, we were the ones that were actually bringing uh, a message and an alternative, an actual bloody platform to the uh, to the table. Um, so, essentially, what happened immediately before that is there uh, we'd lost another election. Um, we hadn't really managed to put together as a party anything approaching um, a cohesive policy platform it was all very piecemeal a lot of the policies that were putting forward weren't particularly different I suppose um, in some respects to what the Tories were doing so I think Labour have for had a long time kind of triangulated towards the centre because that's where well they do report that Margaret Thatcher says that the <laughs> uh, her biggest achievement was Tony Blair was Tony Blair yeah so I don't know I think she she probably thinks breaking the unions was actually her biggest achievement you know but um, I think in any way she's dead she's dead you know good riddance to bad rubbish um, so, so Ed Miliband was seen as the left candidate for for the for the previous slate and 
Yeah, he didn't really deliver. Um, we had a had a party. We'd been abstaining on a number of very important votes around welfare. We hadn't been doing anything ambitious or different on things um, like 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 looking after um, refugees, talking about issues around migration. We hadn't really done anything that would define us as um, a a potential party of government with something different to offer. Also, a tax on the national health scheme is very uh, a button pusher in England, isn't it? Well, it is because when when you look at um, the vast swathes of of the public uh, sector that's being privatised, so yes, like the NHS with Virgin Healthcare, uh, Dick Branson taking over big parts of that. Um, we have privatisation of uh, uh, public transport as well. Um, huge parts of uh, you know, the state that we own are being sold off by the Tory government. And, you know, I, I really do think that Jeremy's um, selection and then election to leadership was a real reaction against that and against the fact that the Labour Party hadn't really stood for anything for, for a long time and people had a real appetite for change. And, and if you look at parties that come from that kind of neoliberal background and that haven't really managed to offer um, viable economic alternatives, real structural change, um, they're in decline all over all over the Western world. These parties are in decline because the people don't understand or trust what they stand for anymore. And our huge burgeoning membership, we now have 600,000 members of the, of the Labour Party in the UK, which makes us, like, I think, the biggest left party. Which was one of the things yeah. I was going to get to, mm. the strategy for getting young people to involve, to engage. Yeah. Can you talk about that? So um, the funny thing was there wasn't really a, a push to... They pushed in. Yeah, they, they came to <laughs> us. We weren't really pitching at, at, at young people particularly. Actually, a huge number of people came back to the party. So That's right. people who had left over Iraq, um, uh, labour stance on things like arms trades, um, they came back because they saw that this was going to be a vehicle to deliver real change for the country. Young people came to the party because the way that the uh, Labour Party organises now is very much um, based on uh, going into communities and mobilising people around communities of interest, finding out what the issues are on the ground and actually getting people out there to campaign um, through vehicles like Momentum as well, obviously, um, very well known the part that they have played in helping get some really fantastic MPs elected who are now in who are now in the uh, shadow cabinet um, several very very uh, good and, characters and in also there. got a lot of different noses out of joint really yeah uh, was, established yeah. traditional people then. yeah so when when you say established traditional I presume you mean the existing what, Blairite the existing MPs. Blairite um, yeah, yeah yeah so the the issue there is that I I don't doubt for a second that there are people, um, MPs elected who come from that tradition who have good intentions. The issue is there are a few who that's I suppose... Very, that's very generous. <laughs> well, I mean, there are there are things that I mean, you can't completely gloss over some of the 97 bunch achievements. You know, there are, there are some feathers in the cap for them. But I think the frustration is... Uh, for a long time, many people, myself included, kind of hung on in there and put up with, I have to say, a lot of CRAP because 
we didn't want to just back down and leave. We wanted to wait until we had a platform to put somebody who we believed in forward. And and, and it would actually have a big cogent and actually work. Yeah, be cogent and work. Because that's what I was going to get, get yeah, to. A- yeah, absolutely. But the, the issue is there is a sense of ownership of the party um, among certain sections of the PLP. Uh, and they perhaps see the party as being something that that um, uh, is almost something that is possessed by a certain school of thought. So when they see this huge influx of, of members who want to be part of this change, who want to actually play a role in this movement actively, they see them not as an opportunity um, and not as a, a chance to build strength, but in, in fact a threat to the kind of cosy, um, focus group orientated, um, controllable, I suppose, politics that um, that they, they used to stand for. Well, it's so, a classic yes minister. Yeah, you know the, the internal machinations of the machine, isn't yes, it? Really. Exactly. So I, I think it's in the best interest of the Labour Party to very actively shift away from that way of doing things and I think we will I think the next round of of selections will um we'll see a few people challenged out of their kind of complacency you're on solidarity breakfast with Annie and we're talking to uh April Cummings and we're talking about uh Corbyn's England potentially uh (laughs) it's interesting because uh Everything was thrown, everything the mainstream had was thrown at Corbyn. Uh, just, mm. uh, it, it's a bit like the, the favourite game I've got at the moment, which is every time I come into the station, I check the mainstream newspapers to see what the Australian and the Sun Herald, uh, what anti-Labour Party story they'll have. Mm. And uh, they never fail. <coughs> they never fail me. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, when it came to Corbyn, the attacks were quite uh, salacious and very individual. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's disappointing that there um, is such a lack of plurality in the British media when it comes to uh, platforming alternative voices. Just, I think that a lot... Um, is under threat at the moment and a lot of very powerful vested interests are trying to control what messages get out there. The B- even the BBC, uh, whose um, editorial uh, board apparently seemed to come straight from the from the Oxford playbook, you know, they're all uh, they seem to be signed up Tory party members these days. Mm. Um, the uh, independence movement same, as well in here. Scotland had the same thing happen to them. Whenever mm. you table something... Um, that puts at risk the status quo that maybe could shake things up a bit and turn existing power structures on their head, which a Corbyn-led government would do, people will throw everything at it. So what what we've seen recently um, with the the smears and attacks uh, re-Israel and Palestine, what they've done is essentially they've been grasping at anything to throw at him for a long time and nothing has stuck. So they have obviously done a little bit of groundwork and they figured out that this is the one thing that they think will stick on him. So they're pulling out all the stops. And it's very disappointing because some of the attacks are actually coming from people from within the party who know just how hard he's campaigned against racism, against Islamophobia, against anti-Semitism his entire life. The fact that they're doing it and they're weaponizing a very, very serious issue is actually disgusting. I find it frankly disgusting. I, I feel very, very sorry for the thousands of members who come from 
Jewish or, um, or or Arabic background who are members of the Labour Party who have had to watch this happen. And it's something that should be addressed on a serious level. It shouldn't be used as, to, to attack the elected leader of a party who has done everything he can his entire life to fight against it. It's interesting, isn't it? Because someone was saying to me the other day about... Uh, uh, it's a smaller but similar issue. The uh, just recently, on a couple of days ago, the mm. uh, there was a, a charges made against the uh, CFMEU for cartel, cartel mm. laws, mm-hmm, mm. which just seems ludicrous. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you know there's cartels, you keep falling over in terms of oil and gas, da da da. Mm. Uh, but one of the things that uh, the CFMEU are constantly being attacked for uh, at the moment is people swearing, right? <laughs> and yeah, you can laugh, but yeah. it, you know, for people who are on construction sites, this is just like extra the same language. It's just language, right? Yeah. Now. But it's being used as a stick, a legal stick to beat across people's heads and uh, they're being charged and all the rest of it. Mm. Now, the person who was speaking to me says, oh, you know, sometimes I wonder if they do it, sit down there and think about what what, what can we do that will attack these people without, um, uh, you know, and do it in a sort of a cynical and class- mm. uh, callous way. And I said to him, yes, that's exactly what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Because there's a, there's a class difference here that uh, the people who do the swearing don't even see it as being an offence, mm. right? Uh, and uh, this class difference is the thing that uh, the the people who own the power are using against these workers. Now, uh, this business about dividing uh, labour supporters on this racist issue, in a sense, is a similar thing because it's a very important issue, but it's a class issue too, isn't it? Absolutely. And language is a very, very powerful powerful thing. So when what I've tended to find in my time working for the party, but also in my time working here um, and being involved in the trade union movement, is that people will look to divide you based on... Um, anything that they, they, they think will, will break you up into a more manageable group. So, um, for example, in, in, the, in the UK, we had the Trade Union Bill, which actively sought to demonise trade unions yeah. and actually act, while also, in a very real way, removing power from them through legislation. Um, anything that will support working people to organise and build power and actively challenge existing structures um, is a threat. And it's a threat to people in the media who have uh, very, very wealthy funders. Um, and they'll, lo- they'll use language to, d- to divide you, absolutely. Um, but we see that we see that everywhere. And I think it's testament to the strength of our message um, with the Change the Rules campaign here as well, with Jeremy's leadership campaign, um, with the, the Labour uh, general election campaign that happened just last year, it's testament to the strength of our message and our alternative, which is positive, um, which is unerringly positive and constructive and real and actually relates to working people's lives. It's testament to the strength of that, that they still haven't really managed to damage us on a reputational level as much as they want to. So as, I think as long as we continue to provide a, a, a real um, positive and 
uh, relatable alternative to working people, I, I think that we can counteract that negative, divisive uh, language and we can keep fighting back. I think that's what yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting because uh, Corbyn's been at the head of uh, the Labour Party mm. for a long time now mm-hmm. and the wheels haven't fallen off. No, absolutely not. So while I, I suppose he's not polling as high on um, uh, leadership, um, so I, I think bizarrely, Theresa May still uh, polls slightly higher than he does. That's in, weird. In, uh, isn't it weird? Because yeah. she's such an she's unrelatable so demon. Um, <laughs> Especially after the burning building. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I think people have far too short memories in the United Kingdom sometimes with this kind of thing. Um, he, I, I think because it is about so much more. So while so many, many people find him um, to be a fantastic leader in, ter- in terms of the, the rhetoric and the way that he relates to people and goes out into communities and actually engages. And his engages. steadfastness. Yeah, and his, and his steadfastness and the fact mm. that he's, he, never, he never resorts to throwing mud. He, al- he always responds with a positive, um, factual, you know, um, um, uh, comeback. He, it, it's, the Labour Party is still polling higher than the Tories, now, I don't really believe in polls anymore because you've been shown in the past that they're just, you can't really rely on them. Um, but the fact that we are still in fairly large samples coming out on top, I think is just absolutely fantastic. I, and I don't think necessarily the most important thing is to have Jeremy as an individual polling well. I think it's about the movement and it's about how we um, fight back as uh, a group of members rather than just the PLP and rather yeah, than just, just it's, the leader. We're in a very serious and dangerous period of history, I mm, think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that <clears throat> day day one of a Labour government in the UK will see a cessation of all arms trading with Saudi Arabia. It will see a Palestinian state being recognised. It will take the first step towards some kind of meaningful two-state solution. Um, we'll look at things like uh, you know, complete nationalisation of, 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 of the railways. I mean, the, the, not since Clement Attlee will there have been such an enormous shift in the way that we um, do politics in the United Kingdom, but also in the, in the way that we interact with the wider world. I think it would be absolutely fantastic um, and perhaps even have some kind of knock-on effect for Australia with the ALP. You never know. Thanks for coming in, April. You're welcome. International Overdose Awareness Day is held annually on the 31st of August. It is a day to raise awareness of overdose, reduce the stigma of drug-related death and acknowledge the grief felt by family and friends of those who have died. With the ongoing stigmatisation and criminalisation of people who consume drugs in Australia, International Overdose Awareness Day is as important as ever. This year, 3CR will be broadcasting a special half-hour program at 10am on Friday the 31st of August. Join us for a panel discussion looking at current efforts to reduce the tragic loss of life from overdose in Australia. Experts will offer perspectives from the fields of research, service delivery and, most importantly, peers in the community. 
And uh, that we've come to the end of the program, Solidarity Breakfast. Thank you so much to April Cummings for coming and having a chat to us about Corbyn's Engl- England. We we all talk about it, but uh, knowing what's actually going on in the on the ground and its po- potential knock on effects, we realise that uh, uh, internationalism really is here because the uh, right wing and neoliberals t- sing from the same hymn sheet. And uh, it's quite clear that uh, the international workers of the world were correct. Uh, We uh, went to look at the uh, energy, environment and energy policy and realising that uh, for the LNP and maybe others, that it's energy and its cost that's more important than the environment. We uh, then moved on to Blue Stocking Week and listened to some interesting details about Australian uh, working women's lives and have many things changed. Uh, we moved on to the fee go for pensioners. This is the week that was, and then we went out with Corbyn. Coming up next is uh, Asia-Pacific Currents, always full of great details, but we're going to go out with How Can I Not Go Out with Aretha Franklin and Respect and uh, Vale Aretha. <laughs> You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.